0: Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir-lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today my guest is Isitra Menkos. She was born and raised in Barcelona. She spent her 20s experimenting with the new freedoms afforded by the end of Franco's dictatorship in Spain, while immersing herself in books and dancing. She freelanced for prestigious publishing houses, traveled the world as a tour leader, and worked for the Olympic Committee. In 1992, she moved to the U.S. to earn a Ph.D. in Spanish and Latin American Contemporary Literature at UC Berkeley, where she taught for 12 years. She also developed her own business as a writer and editor for Spanish-speaking media. After a 10-year stint in corporate America, managing teams in several countries, she quit her job in 2016 to dedicate herself to writing. Since then, her essays have been widely published in literary journals and general interest magazines such as Chicago Quarterly Review, Front Porch Journal, The Huffington Post, Wisdom Well, and Wired. One was listed as notable in the Best American Essays Anthology. Today, Isitra lives in Northern California with her husband and son. Her memoir, Promenade of Desire, came out on October 11th. Welcome, Isitra. Thank you, Ronnie. It is wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here, and I would love to start our conversation by having you share a bit about your memoir, Promenade of Desire. Sure. Promenade of Desire narrates my journey from
1: repression to liberation in tandem with Spain's transition from dictatorship to democracy. The women of my generation, we were raised to be Catholic virgin maidens. It was a, a dictatorship that was very closely allied to the Catholic Church. But then when the dictator Franco died in 1975, we became seductive mataharis. <laughs> the democratic transition took a few years, but, but the change culturally and sexually came overnight. It was like if all of a sudden the hippie era had bloomed in Spain 10 years after than the U.S. So we went from a country where you couldn't even kiss in public, they could literally take you to jail for indecent behavior, to all of a sudden every magazine cover was full of teats and butts, and Mm. the youth started experimenting with open relationships, promiscuity, drugs, etc. I was 17 when when Franco died, so I went through this transformation, but at the same time, I was dealing with uh, childhood traumas and and a huge amount of insecurity. I, I was trying to find love through sex, but the reality is that I was searching for intimacy, and it's very hard to find in one-night stands. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: So, like like many of my peers, I got a little bit lost in all that change, and and it took me a while until I was able to reclaim my whole self and reclaim my sensuality without any shame and with all confidence. So that's the story, this coming of age in the memoir, which is both my sexual awakening and the country's sexual and political awakening.
0: Mm -hmm. I love the way you covered so much in that summary. There's so much going on. And I think for me, I'm embarrassed to admit this is one of the first stories I've read set in this time period and place. Have you read a lot of memoir or novels that have similar settings and times as yours? You know, in Spain, the memoir
1: genre is not very popular yet. There isn't mm-hmm. a whole lot of memoirs, unless it's you know a few ones that are from celebrities. So there isn't a whole lot based on that period of time, and definitely not a lot of memoirs in Spain. That said, you know I was always fascinated by the interplay between politics and private lives, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, in fact, that's a lot of what I did Either during my PhD. I studied a lot that kind of interplay. And it was very important to me to uh, to talk about that in my memoir, that it wasn't just my story because I kind of feel like it's the story of a generation because mm-hmm. we went through, through this change that was so sudden, so abrupt after the death of the dictatorship that it, it, we just went from one side to the opposite extreme. And so I, I had a very strong foundation in history from my studies. And I just wanted to to do that, to do something that wasn't just me, was more mm-hmm. than me.
0: Mm-hmm. To your knowledge, did the majority of people your age and your generation drop into this new lifestyle and sexual awakening similar to you? Were there people who really resisted the changes?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there was still a lot of conservative forces that were underlying the change into a democracy that just kept doing as they usually did. But the people I moved with, you know, I was 17 when this happened. So it was my first year at university. And my friends there and then the friends that I uh, gained afterwards, they were all in this kind of... Uh, counterculture activist bohemian way of life and definitely everybody who surrounded me went kind of in that direction. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when did you know, you know, you, you worked a lot, you had lots of different roles, you danced, you traveled, you did so many different things in your life, but you were writing. And when did you know that you needed to write this story of your sexual awakening and dealing with shame and secrets? You know, it's funny because I never thought I would write memoir
1: in my life. Yeah. I, I, I love that's like it, me too. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I I fell into memoir almost by chance because what happened is that I had kind of stopped writing for a few years, quite a lot of years actually. I didn't write regularly, and I I really felt a huge gap in my life. So finally, I decided I was going to go get back into writing. And in 2015, I attended a one-day workshop at a Zen center. It was about Zen and writing. Mm-hmm. I really liked the teacher in that workshop, and the writing teacher, not the, the monk, uh, mm-hmm. although I like her too, <laughs> but I specifically like the, the writing teacher a lot. Uh, his name was Roger Hostin. And he was offering a course online starting the next week. So I decided, well, let me just enroll in that course and that way I'm going to keep the momentum. Mm -hmm. Well, it happened to be a memoir course. And so I thought, well, I'll try it. And then as soon as I started writing memoir, I got completely hooked. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that hooked me was that I very innocently, I thought, this is gonna be a piece of cake. I already <laughs> have the plot and the characters. It's gonna be super easy. <laughs> of course, I I found out as I started writing and getting more deeply into memoir that it wasn't easy at all because on the one hand, you had to have all the craft of of a novel writer, but you also had to deal with a lot of aspects that were very difficult, like your memory gaps or the fear of telling the truth and then being rejected by your loved ones uh, when that happened. But anyway, as soon as I started writing memoir, I just simply couldn't let it go. I, I had such an urge to tell this story because, First, I really wanted to understand why I had self-destructed myself so much in my 20s via you know, promiscuity and alcohol and all of that. But I also, as I mentioned before, I just thought that it was the story of a whole generation. I was very eager to explore that and, and to find out if that was actually true, that it was not just me and my personal circumstances, but it was something that was very driven as well from what was happening outside of me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And that that leads me to this question of getting Spain and your youth depicted so clearly. How did you get Spain and your experiences on the page with such clarity? What resources helped you?
1: Well, you know, as I said before, I did have a very strong history background from studying Spanish literature uh, and always working on that context that um, shaped the novels that I was uh, reading Mm -hmm. for class. Mm -hmm. I had that background, but really I did a ton of research, a ton of history research, because I wanted to have the exact dates and not make any mistakes in that regard. But my goal really was to... Explain the history as a lived history. I didn't want this to be a history treatise or a historical Mm -hmm. memoir. I wanted this to be a very personal memoir. So from all that research that I did, I really used only like a 10th of it, which was Mm -hmm. the things that I had lived personally. I don't know, just to, to give you an example to talk about, the big political activism that happened right around Franco's death and after his death, asking for democracy. I didn't expound of that. I just explained a scene of when I attended a demonstration and the police came and started beating everybody up and I was almost beaten by a police and so on. Mm. So I was trying to always have the right facts behind me through research, but also just explain that only through my personal experience, because otherwise it would have been very boring.
0: Mm-hmm. And did you, I don't know if this is the same for all of the elements in your memoir, but how did you go about using that research? Did you start off by writing all that you remembered personally and then filled it out? Or did you start off with research? Did you? Was there any system?
1: That's very a uh, very good question. I actually started by writing, just writing, 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 writing. And then after Sorry. that, I
0: was just imagining that on a quote card. I just started yeah. by writing, writing, like that's, that's really all there is. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, so Sorry. that's what
1: I did. I, I wrote a lot. And then after that, I had to make sure that my memory was correct. Mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. I did research and I created a chart. So in the chart, I had the year in one, in one column Then on the other one, what was happening to me or what I was doing that year, you know, everything, not just anything related to politics, but you know, whatever happened with my friends, my love life, my sex life, whatever it was. And then on the other column, what was happening in Spain on that year precisely. And then when I put those side by side, I could say, okay, I have, I don't know, 55 or 70 facts in the history column, but I'm gonna only I'm only talking about these 25 in my memoir let me just make sure the facts are correct mm-hmm. and so that's how I went about it I went kind of like I didn't want to start with the research because I didn't want it to as I said before you know I just don't didn't want it to be like a history book mm-hmm. or or a historical memoir it's not a historical memoir it's a personal memoir it's just a personal memoir that is very rooted on a very unique period in the history of Spain. Mm -hmm. a period that i feel is very relevant now in the us because Mm -hmm. it's kind of like we're almost going a bit in the opposite direction right where we have a lot of issues with the democracy and democratic rights that are being threatened from one side or the other so i feel like it's it's almost like a warning or a wake-up call of hey you know, this is serious because when mm. you, you go through an authoritarian regime, your life is affected in every single aspect. It's not just political, it's everything. Mm. You know, languages other than Spanish were banned, for example. Spain has four languages. I was from Barcelona. Barcelona, uh, native language is Catalan, but it was forbidden. So I couldn't actually even learn Catalan, you know, to write it and to and to read it. Until I was 19, I was at university. Mm -hmm. Franco had already died, and he came into the university curriculum. Before that, he was forbidden in school. So it it just affects every aspect of your life. So it's something that we need to keep in mind here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. as we see these democratic rights threatened, that this is a very serious thing.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, early in your memoir, you introduced shame and and how it played a role in your life from a really young age. Can you talk about how you felt shame around your body and the ways that that affected the rest of your life and all your life beyond maybe just the body Absolutely. Yes, that was a key, key moment in my life and a key scene
1: in the book that is towards the beginning of the book. And um, what happened is, well, of course, you know, as I said before, you know, the the dictatorship was very strongly allied with the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church was very uh, stringent in terms of sex, you know, so... Sex was only for marriage and for procreation within the marriage. Masturbation was a horrible scene that could send you straight to hell. It was just all very limited. And mm-hmm. of course, at that time, talking about sex was taboo, especially in my family. My family was very Catholic. And so what happened is I was five years old and I discovered that touching myself brought this very nice tickle that made me feel really good. I had no idea that was sexual in any way. It it was just a sensual experience for me. But when my mom saw me doing that, she scolded me a few times. And then the last time she was very severe with me and um it told me it was absolutely disgusting and dirty and from that moment on it was like the end of paradise for me Mm -hmm. because as a very young child i felt like i was living in paradise especially because especially in the summer times, because we, we spent the summer in this little town, and my grandfather had this beautiful house with like huge gardens, and it was just so oh yeah, beautiful. Oh, opening
0: scenes are just so vivid, and yes. I, I really felt what you were trying to convey there with those beautiful memories and scenes.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And then when that happened, it was like all of a sudden, my perfect life crumbled, because Here I was doing something that for me was completely innocent. It felt good. But then for my mom, it was disgusting. And I was dirty. And she looked at me with such hate that I Mm. just felt like she didn't love me anymore. So from that moment on, seeking pleasure for me became um, completely connected to shame. It felt like you know, I, if I seek pleasure, I was going to lose the love of the people who I love the most. And so it, it created a huge block uh, with, uh, between me and my my body and my own sensations. And it was something that it was very, very difficult to reclaim mm-hmm. that sensuality and that right to seek pleasure and feel pleasure and not have any shame about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it kind of spread tentacles through most of your adult life, or at least until you, when the memoir ends, you're in a, in a new place, and I don't want to give anything away, but, you know, and you have this container for your memoir, this this time period that you're covering. But has shame reared its head again throughout your life in any similar ways, or do you feel that really was the height of it back then?
1: I think that shame comes a lot from insecurity, uh, and you know when when you do something wrong, uh, and Brené Brown says this beautifully, mm, right? Instead mm-hmm. of feeling shame, you need to feel guilt. You know, mm-hmm. just recognize you did something wrong, <laughs> and you know, just say, ask for forgiveness, and then move on. You cannot mm-hmm. just be buried in guilt. You and mm-hmm. try to be better the next time. However, when you grow with a lot of insecurity, and I had a lot of insecurity. I lived in a house, with we were 10 siblings and my parents, but everybody was very reserved and private and isolated and I felt lonely and unseen. So when you grow that way, and then you add to that the sexual trauma that I had with my mother and I had was molested as well. And mm-hmm. when you add all of that mix, and you grow with that insecurity that you are worthless, that, that you're only worthy if you are used by men instead mm-hmm. of just being seen and appreciated. And you grow with that feeling of not being seen in your own family or understood, you ha- carry a lot of insecurity. And so what that what happens with that, or at least that's what happened with me. I don't know if mm-hmm. it happens to everybody, but to me, I think that whenever I did something, that I wasn't proud of, instead of feeling guilt, I felt guilt, but I also felt shame because I Mm -hmm. felt like there it is. Here I am again, this worthless person, you know, that Mm -hmm. doesn't know how to do anything well. Those old
0: young feelings, those those feelings from a long time ago that are kind of lodged within us.
1: Exactly. You know, and in my house, you know, I was a little bit different in a way. I was kind of a rebel. I was kind of leading a double life since I was (laughs) very young with this issue with the sexuality, because I did keep touching myself, let me say that, but in secret, obviously. So being very young and kind of uh, having a double life and feeling a little bit different, and I was the black sheep in the family, the most rebellious in my family, I felt uh, also like attacked in a way, like I was a snob that I wanted to be different. Mm -hmm. So again, I developed a lot of shame about that, you know, when you are in a family of 10, Uh, not everybody in the family is happy if you are different and do things in a different way. So you kind of develop again a shame of really showing yourself fully, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's taken me many, many years to get over that. It's taken me a lot of years to become truly confident. And even now I will go through my periods of insecurity, but I have changed fundamentally. And I think it has come a lot with personal work and age, you know, just mm. aging, aging out of that moment and just really reclaiming who I am in every single way, including that I am a writer.
0: Mm, yeah. And did, did any, on a side note, I hadn't planned on asking you this, but did any of your other siblings pursue arts or the creative, creative work at all? I... I have one brother uh, who I know writes. He writes
1: haikus, and I think he's working on a novel. Uh, I don't know much about it because he's quite reserved, mm-hmm. but I know he's doing that. He's the only one that I mm-hmm. know of that has an artistic bent. I did have a brother when i was when he was young. He was publishing a magazine, a little magazine, about the leisure activities in Barcelona. It was the first of its kind. And and he was more in that vein.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: then, you know, he didn't have enough money to continue the venture. And then he just uh, refocused on his career as a lawyer.
0: Mm-hmm. So what concerns, if any, did you have about sharing what you experienced in your family in these pages for all to read?
1: I do have a lot of concerns. The moment that we're talking right now, uh, my book is still not out and my family has not read it. So that's my biggest fear, is that they will read it and they will be very upset. Not so much because of what I say about them in particular, about my siblings, my parents are both deceased right now, but because as such a private family, just putting our dirty laundry out there you know just uh, daring to show aspects of our family and even my mother that were conflictive or or so on that might me feel as a betrayal to them however on my author's note i do say that i consider it a gift to them actually instead of a betrayal because what i feel is that I have shown through the 30 years that I lived in the US that I'm committed to my family. I still go visit them every couple of years. Even now when my parents are not there, I just went there that summer and saw all my siblings. So I I just feel like to me, it's a way of showing that no family is perfect. Mm -hmm. Every family has flaws. That doesn't mean we cannot be connected. It just means that we are not perfect and that we need to accept each other with a good dose of compassion and self-compassion and forgiveness and then move on. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know Mm -hmm. if they're going to react that way. They may react by saying that they never want to talk to me. And I think as a memoirist, you have to kind of weigh what you are able to risk. You have to decide... Am I able to risk this, losing these connections or not? You know, there are memoirs like Mary Carr that show their books or their manuscripts to their family before they publish them, just to make sure that her memory is accurate. And if if anybody wants anything taken out, which they never wanted to, then you have memoirs like Julia Shears, who published the wonderful book, Jesus Land, and in that book, she explains how abusive her parents were. And after the book came out, her parents and part of her siblings never wanted to talk to her again. And mm-hmm. she said, so be it. You know, mm-hmm. that's what happened, and I'm going to tell it. I'm kind of in the middle of that. I, I do want to keep the connection with my family. It's important to me. On the other hand, if telling my story makes some of them never want to talk to me again, that's their prerogative, and Mm -hmm. I'll have to accept it. That said, most of my siblings don't read English, and for now, the memoir is only in English, so (laughs) (laughs) I feel a little protected in that sense, although I know that's silly, because eventually, I hope it will come out in Spanish, but it gives me a little bit of time to at least get the reactions of the ones that do read English, and see how they feel about it, and then prepare myself to whatever may come next.
0: I really appreciate what you're saying and also wonder if 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you would have had this outlook about it. Do you think some years ago when you were younger or maybe not have been writing what you want to write for as long, you might have hesitated to share this? Or do you think you have been ready for a long time to share the story? I think I wouldn't have been able to write it
1: before. I was uh, too insecure still I hadn't gained the confidence that I feel right now I hadn't gained this view of life uh, where to me is really really important um, and, and, and a foundation of the way I, I see life that we are not perfect that we all mm-hmm. have flaws that that requires self-acceptance, self-compassion and compassion for others. This is very foundational for me now. I don't think it was as foundational before because I felt too much shame at least mm-hmm. still. And, and I have to say, Ronit, it was hard in terms of my family, but it was also really hard for me to put myself out there with such raw narrative because mm-hmm. it is pretty raunchy at times mm-hmm. and it includes a lot of the mistakes I made. Well the worst mistakes i made i should Mm -hmm. say it includes all of that so there's this fear that people are gonna write me off they're gonna think oh my god i never thought she would be like that (laughs) but you know right now i look at my past and you know i was young i made the mistakes that many young women Mm -hmm. make that's okay you know this is not what i do today or who i am today and i i love myself and i accept the way i was and I forgive myself for the mistakes I made because I didn't know any better at that time, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. But yes. but yeah,
1: there is some fear for sure.
0: Yes. And I, I think too, I really like to talk about this because that privacy and what to share, what not to share issue is constant, I think, with memoir, you know, when we're writing these personal narratives. So what about your husband, your child, like... You know, the people closest to you, do you have any self-consciousness at all about sharing your earlier sexual life?
1: Well, you know, this is going to be funny, but uh, I did share my memoir with my husband. He he read it when he was in the ARC uh, advanced reader copy format, and he loved it, but I'm going to tell you what the first thing he said was, and, and you're going to laugh. He asked me, do you have any lovers? <laughs>
0: Wait, he thought this was like a long rollout. Like I, I just yes. want to try to tell you something, honey. There's someone on the side.
1: No, no. He asked me if I had lovers, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's like we've been together for 27 years, married for 25 years, faithful. We are both monogamous, and but he, when he saw that crazy wild woman, you know, <laughs> in, in my 20s, he was like, I mean, it's impossible that you're happy with
0: just one guy, oh. you know. <laughs> I know. I mean, that's like, that's the part that's, you know, my memoir covers a long time ago in my life, of course, and the the current narrator as well. But it's, I haven't written one about my relationships now. I have, I'm like, as me as more of a fully formed person. And it's, it does present a different set of issues.
1: Yes, yes. And and the thing is that I, I, after that initial bump where I said, absolutely not, I mean, why mm-hmm. do you even ask that? Don't you know me already after almost 30 years together? But after that, we had really profound conversations based on the memoir. It was just a wonderful time of mm-hmm. achieving more closeness and, mm-hmm. and getting really, you know, a deeper love, because he really knew everything about me then. I had told him about a lot of this, but, you know, not in the detail that I explained in the memoir, and it really actually got us a lot closer. Now, mm-hmm. my son wanted to read my memoir, too, and I told him, I said, Adrián, I don't know if this memoir is for you. There's a lot of sex. You may not want to see your mom in that situation. I mm-hmm. said, no, no, mom, I really want to read it. Well, he read about the first 20 pages and then he came back to me and he said, "You know, mom, I think I'm not going to read it." Yeah.
0: I think I'll stick I'll stick with your essays in Wired. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's really lovely that he that he wanted to. I I I love I love that we're able to talk about this. I think it's so important. I think a lot of memoirists have these concerns, you know? I mean, it's so funny to write the most personal Stories and in, in our our what we've learned and what we're questioning and yet have to or or feel like we might want to protect our loved ones from some of it. It's just a very interesting paradox, I think. So for you, when you were writing about your sexual awakening, what was important to include for you? And like, what was the, the really important aspect of your sexual awakening that you wanted to make sure you covered in writing your memoir? I
1: think, well, first of all, the uh, original traumas that I went through both with my mom and then the molestation that I went through with a relative, those were really important because they shaped me and they shaped the way I saw sexuality. And then adding to that the lack of intimacy in my home, that was another complication, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so those were very important to include. And I don't know if you've read Melissa Febos' Girlhood, this collection of essays, which I absolutely love. And she talks about the empty concept, which is when you kind of let men, uh, you know, ha- do anything they want with you apparently you are consenting, but really you're not consenting, you're just kind of playing out the pattern of being used that you learned when you were younger. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to me. So for me, including the, the 20s, the period of the 20s where there was a lot of promiscuity and a lot of one night stands and a lot of boyfriends and living boyfriends and so on. Um, it was important to be raw and honest about it because it was so directly related. It was really a consequence from this upbringing that I had that was so repressed. And then, you know, you kind of Go to the other extreme, plus also the traumas that I had lived through, the empty consent that I had learned since I was a child. That was the way to attract male attention. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I just wanted to be honest. You know, this is who I was. This is, I was trying to find my confidence through men, and that didn't work out. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I had to learn to find that confidence through my own self. Mm-hmm.
0: So, is there any, aspect of writing memoir, aside from the the secrets and, you know, deciding what to disclose and share that you find particularly challenging in terms of craft?
1: Yes, I think one of the the biggest issues, uh, oh, well, I'll say two or three, perhaps. But one of them is uh, your memory has a lot of gaps. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you're trying to figure out do I remember this correctly? Did I not remember this correctly? You have a lot of insecurity around that. So luckily I had some journals that helped me place things correctly. But I also did show some chapters to some of my ex-boyfriends and uh, commented them and asked for details to some friends. So that helped out with that. But I think the biggest issue is finding your topic. Hmm. It's really trying to be sure that you're not trying to tell everything, that Hmm. you're, you're really clear about what your main topic or main topics are. And then you're kind of editing out a lot of the things in your life. Because if you were explaining from beginning to end everything that happened, It would be an 800-pages book, and it would Mm -hmm. be boring, and it would be an autobiography. It wouldn't be a memoir. Mm -hmm. So I think just having that discipline, I mean, just to to tell you that my first version of the memoir had 120,000 words. Mm. The last version had 84,000 or Mm 86,000. So I chucked out a third of the initial memoir or so, Mm -hmm. or I don't know how much, but 20% at least and and I needed to be very disciplined about staying close to the theme and and making sure that I wasn't just going in every direction
0: mm mm-hmm. yes and how long did it take you do you think from the beginning to the end so so to speak of writing the book how how long how, how long was the process it was about 6 years i started writing little fragments in 2015 uh, through
1: classes and then in 2016 i quit my job to focus more on memoir writing on writing and i launched my own business on the side and i started taking a lot of classes and so i was writing a like little fragments for the classes uh, in 2016 and then i just started really shaping the narrative and adding more and filling gaps I I did a lot of drafts, I mean, I lost count, but I I definitely like 14 drafts or more Mm -hmm. of this memoir. And I I have to tell you, I was even editing the memoir when it was in the I, I I thought it was done, but once I read it in book format, I still had a lot of edits. Little edits, but mm-hmm. I still had a lot of things, you know, and now I'm scared to read it again because I'm <laughs> sure I would
0: change things still. I had that same reaction. I thought, I, I can't even look at it. I can't. So so can you share some of your favorite memoirs, some of the books that have helped you a lot in your in your own process of writing? Sure.
1: I, I have a pretty eclectic taste in memoirs. On the one hand, I love classic memoirs, you know, classic storytelling like Mary Car's. The Liars Club or Lit or Angela Sashes by Frank McCourt. But then I also love experimental memoirs, you know, like Carmen Maria Machado mm-hmm. or, you know, Melissa Fibos, I adore. She's my latest literary crush. Mm-hmm. And then I love fun memoirs like Augustine Borough's Dry or David Sedari's collections. I know i am not funny. I, I mean, I, I don't even try because I, I don't know how to be funny. <laughs> but I, I do love their, their books as well. And I have to say David Sedari's essays, have been a big inspiration for me for personal essays more than for a memoir but for personal essays but yeah i am quite eclectic
0: mhm and do you have some advice you know you you've shared so much about the writing process and sharing these private memories that took you a long time to be able to come to grips with. So do you have any last words of advice you'd like to share with memoirists or writers in general about, you know, how to approach writing or even about how to go about sharing, you know, family and sexual history in their books? Anything you want. This is your opportunity. Well, it's not going to be a very original piece of advice, but I'll tell
1: you two. The first one is you can't edit a blank page so (laughs) write crap and then fix it and the second one this is uh, very personal but i i'd say that look for feedback absolutely you know a book is always a collaboration but also trust your gut feeling trust your gut feeling you know your book better than anybody else so for example uh, i had a lot of uh, back and forth with my editor about my book title she didn't like my title in progress and we went back and forth, I don't know how many times, and I had a list of like 50 possible titles. I just couldn't really fall in love with the ones she was suggesting or the ones I came up with, until I finally settled on the title and immediately I knew this was the title for my memoir, once I, I, I found it. So trust your gut feeling and, and everybody has loved it. Everybody mm-hmm. loves this title. So my gut feeling was, was right. And, and same with the, the beginning of my memoir, I had a lot of different beginnings for my memoir. And even my developmental editor wanted a different beginning for my memoir than the one I actually have now. Mm-hmm. But my gut feeling was, no, I, I need to start with this piece that is, it just sets this scene for the family and it's, it's very vivid and it's, mm-hmm. it just throws you in the middle of the family and the summer and that paradise that I lived through as a child. And it was very, very strong feeling and I went
0: with it and, and I hope
1: it's the right decision, you know?
0: Well, I hear, yes, I appreciate that very much. And also as readers You know, readers know. They're pretty smart. And so when you opened your memoir that way, I understood there's sort of an agreement. There's sort of like this idea of it's starting like this, so I know it's going to change. (laughs) I know something is going to happen to disturb this. Because we're readers and we understand what you're trying to tell us, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a mystery there and also tension because you realize you are setting the scene for something that will change,
1: Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. So Isidra, where can people find you? Where are the best places online or your website where readers can find you? They can find me in my website,
1: isidramenkos.com, dot scom And I'm in social media. They can find me on Instagram, in Facebook, always at Isidra Mencos, in Twitter, on t- Twitter,
0: uh, LinkedIn, everywhere. Great. Thank you so much for being my guest and for having this conversation with me. I really learned a lot. Thank you, Ronit.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast. So this was a great honor for me.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.